0: going to give you the backlog as to like my my deep interest in China and also I'm going to tell you about the first time I went to Shanghai and what ended up ultimately moving me to Shanghai but I I visited Shanghai two or three times before I finally moved there so that will be in later stories so my initial interest in China was like when I was 17 I don't really remember what came first I think it was fighting because I was I was punching my bag all the time trying to get Good at fighting. And I was studying a little bit of jujitsu and like looking at different different kinds of martial arts stuff. And I ended up like kind of tackling or pushing over this guy who ended up being a good friend of mine. And I lived with him later. But he said, I can't believe you pushed me over. I go to kung fu class, man. And I have this strong horse stance. So he ended up going to Kung Fu class like down the street from where I lived at and I tried to look up what Kung Fu was and it was like all these old weak guys and I was like that's not gonna ever be able to, you can't fight and look like these guys. But I ended up being super impressed by the way that these guys moved. Their flexibility and strength and stuff and I was strong but I couldn't do any of that stuff so I pretty much immediately stopped weightlifting and just started trying to do Kung Fu and I ended up after I graduated high school for four months, my dad went to Europe to do, like, traveling. And I just completely, completely focused on Kung Fu with, with the entire Eastern philosophy thing. Because I happen to have got into that at the same time. Which is worth telling because it's worth telling because it's an interesting story. I I heard about Bruce Lee from learning Kung Fu. And I went to buy this book of his called, like... The Tao of Ji Do, which is his style. It's like a kind of how-to-be-a-badass book. And it was sold out. And there was a, another book called Striking Thoughts by him, which is just clippings of, like, his thinking. And that was the first time I had even heard of philosophy. And that led me to getting other books, like um, I got something called The Tao of Physics, which is somebody trying to make relationships between the two things. So I used to like train four hours a day physical kung fu style and i'd be stretching a couple hours a day meditating the actual full-on zazen or zazen style of meditation and i try to learn something that was so informative that it would blow my mind i i would go out and just like look out into the sky or look at the moon after i would learn something that would blow my mind and i did that every day for months so that was, that was maybe the best period of my whole life. I don't think anybody normally gets to do that. But I did that. So obviously I became really interested in Chinese. And, um, you know, around that time they had that movie by Ang Lee that came out, A Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I went to see that with my family, my brother and my parents. And it hit me so hard. Um, just the whole thing, man. It just kind of captured all the stuff that I had feelings for. And I remember them speaking Chinese because it was in subtitled English and the sound of Mandarin. And that's when I, that's when I made the promise to myself that I have to learn this language. That's it. And we got in the car at the end of the movie and my brother turned to me and said, I thought it was pretty good. What do you think? And I was just like kind of still in shock from that movie. I couldn't say anything. I wasn't about to put it in words. And he was like, what do you think? And so I just got out of the car, and I walked home. Like, you know, my parents drove next to me for a little bit, but I didn't live that far from... The theater wasn't that far from my house, so you can kind of get the level I was on with my interest in China, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Like, anything I could read about China, I was, and I was on the Internet trying to meet people in China any way I could. Um, There's something called Second Life, which is like a virtual a virtual reality kind of thing. And I would go in there and just try to collect Chinese people's MSNs, which is kind of like the original messenger. So I had like 300 contacts in China that I would try to talk to and I would try to speak Chinese with. And I took a semester of Chinese, which I did well in for me because I didn't do well in any classes otherwise. Um, And I, I joined like a local meetup group called the Asians Meetup group from age 20, 20s and 30s, so I tried really hard to anything Chinese-ish I tried to get an inter- like involved in. And all the meanwhile, from age 18 to 26, I, I patented my own invention and I was really invested in that. like I was going to be an Asian um, studies major in New York City and a jazz minor. and I even lived in New York City for a summer like working at a licensing company and I went into the, what they call the uh, Shaolin, the USA Shaolin Temple, which is the first time the monks if you know, the Shaolin Temple is has a long history and that's one of the places, the Bodhidharma, the, the original founder of Kung Fu who may or may not have come from India taught Kung Fu at this temple and this temple took it as the religion and that religion Was the closest thing to what I had been doing that summer, which was that complete investment. Like it's along the lines as like every second, every moment, every waking breath, you're you're fighting to to do the noble thing, which is exhausting. I mean, and there's no resting. You're always doing the best you can to better yourself, and that's what it's called Zen in English or Chan, I guess, in Chinese. It's Chan. Buddhism. There's no doctrine to it. It's kind of like the only rule is you can find a meditative state in any motion, which means like if you're doing Kung Fu, you should be in the same state than if you are in like a sitting stillness of meditation. And I didn't know anybody who practiced this. You know, this was something that I was uncovering as I went along. And I, I'll i tell you, I did reach Nirvana and I didn't even know what Nirvana was, but I hit it. It was because there's something about the most activity you can do in a day by pushing forward, and then the, the stillness after that that kind of amplifies the stillness. Like if you're just still all the time and you're you're lazy, like you, you can't hit it, but you can hit it when you're putting your strongest efforts out all day. And it's what z- zazen or zazen is, is it's it's folding your legs sitting on a pad so you balance and you fall asleep with your eyes open sitting erect straight up and certain features of your face, you know, like just to be technical there, and en- that ends up being like, I want to say 30 different features that you can recognize in a statue of Buddha to know whether or not the person who carved that Buddha really could meditate and has hit that state before. So there's like stories of me in Boston when I'm 19 going to college, visiting the a uh, museum of boston and and seeing these buddhas that came from cambodia and hitting me and just tears like coming out because that's what that's what a buddha statue is i don't think people i don't think anybody i know or maybe even people i don't know have any idea like you're trying to capture that's the key right there if you see a properly carved buddha statue that's all it's that's all it is is instructions it's how to reach nirvana it's how to reach the meditative state which is sleeping while awake or awake while sleeping and what happens is like you know they injected thing uh, some kind of radio tracing elements into bloodstreams of people who meditate and they found the parts of your brain that recognize time and space they stop getting blood but the rest of your brain does so from my experience it's like you're you're here but you can you can see, there's some like all knowing feeling And all the things around you, you can feel their disintegration-likeness to them and what, what does stay and what doesn't stay. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but all that represented China to me. I didn't fall in love with India. I fell in love with China. So when I was 19 years old and living in New York City, I knew that this guy had a USA shell and temple on Broadway. I mean, it was probably 10 minutes away from where I was. And I would go over there. I started to walk into it once and I could hear people doing kung fu upstairs and I got scared and I went outside and I remember sitting on the curb across the street, just looking at it for like an hour, just like wanting so badly to go in there because like I said, I never knew anybody else who did the kind of thing that I was doing. Like the kung fu that I was doing, I had learned from a center near my house But it was more than that because I had so much philosophy from Bruce Lee about, you know, the only way is your own way and finding my own styles of Kung Fu. And so I just really wanted to get in there. And I did finally go in there. And it was like a last minute thing I was just going to watch. And they were just about to start. And another guy came in and he was like, can I join in as like a trial class? They're like, yeah. But I had brought for some reason, I guess I originally did want to join. I brought my clothes with me. So I just changed real quick and started stretching. And it was the kind of thing where you just get in line and you're you're doing movements across the mat. And you're just looking at the first person go and the second person go and the third person. And you're trying to figure out what you're going to have to do. And so that was the experience when it became my time. I would go across the mat doing my thing. And um, at some point they were doing kind of like cartwheels coming back. And he kept having them start over, which I thought was a good idea because they weren't, they just didn't seem like they were feeling it, you know. And I loved what he said, by the way. This I'm talking about the monk. There was only one Shaolin monk in America. And that's because in like 19, I want to say 96, maybe 94, the Shaolin monks came to do a tour of the U.S. And the very last day before they went back to China, this dude snuck out. And so he's Shi Ming is his name. And he still has that temple and subsequently has purchased with others help i think 300 acres in new york state to continue the legacy of the shaolin which has definitely died in china so it's a wonderful thing anyway i was coming back as the last one and this was like oh before that so the second time he stopped everybody he was like he's like this is earth do you want to go to the moon this is earth earth is beautiful stay here again. And I thought like that's that's exactly right. I mean, so religiously like the difference between east and west as I understand it was you know one is outside the realms of reality, one's on a cloud somewhere or in your imagination, there's these different worlds that exist and the other is right here and it's all what you have and it's it's the world that you live in. And so that was one way of him saying that that just it, it's just how I felt like this guy was like, I felt like I had that connection. Anyway, the third time he stopped them, I'm still coming back. I'm the last one in line. And he says, you need to try harder. And he points to me and he says, like him. And I was the only one. So it had to be me. <laughs> so that was a, a, a serious moment for me. That was the best day of my life for a long time. Um, and I remember at the end like changing my clothes back and people coming up to me and being like, dude, you gotta come here, man. You gotta join here. Like you gotta come back. And that was like the greatest feeling ever. And I remember telling my mom about that and she didn't say anything over the phone. And then she said, Danny, I don't want you joining a cult which was I mean, that really hurt me badly, because Manhattan, when you're nineteen years old, is a big cold city and I I found my place in it, you know. Anyway, I ended up uh, like having to leave Manhattan, and I'm going to get back to the story. Um, So, fast forward into what I was doing with my business invention. I had borrowed lots and lots of monies from from everywhere I possibly could, and I had gone to a trade show. I had an investor who was I don't know five or six years older than me. We used his money to I used his money to like uh, you know exhibit my product, and people wanted to purchase it but I didn't have a factory. So I'm on my last I'm on my last credit basically. I have like $10,000 of credit. I think that was even my personal credit, not my bank credit. And I knew I could foresee that I wasn't going to be able to pay off these debts. They weren't letting me consolidate. So my last ditch effort was going to be this trade show that I got an email about cuz I was going to lots of textile trade shows for my product. And there was going to be like two big trade shows in Shanghai on the same dates and it just kind of hit me. I remember waking up one morning and it was in my head and I went right over to the phone and I called Rasan, my investor, my limited partner, and I said, there's going to be this trade show in two weeks and maybe that's where we can find a factory because I had tried through so many other channels. This was the very beginning of what you have Alibaba, which is now how everybody finds factories. So, even though that existed, it didn't exist very much. In fact, at one of those trade shows, I was interviewed by Alibaba and they put me on the website talking about using them. Uh, (laughs) So, to my surprise, Rasan was like, let's go, you know, which is super cool. I mean, there's not a lot of people you can say, hey, we got to be in China like in a week and a half. And and they're like, okay, Um, you know, I was going to pay my way, he was going to pay his way. And uh, that was it, man. I, I started to research how to get the cheapest tickets. And I don't remember how I learned or or the process, but it was going to be flying out of New York City directly to Beijing was going to be much, much cheaper than any other flight, like out of Washington. And it was going to be much longer from Washington. There was going to be, you know, layovers. So, Rasan was just going to, I guess he just believed in me and trusted me and, he was good with whatever I was going to call. So the idea was I had a tr- little translating device, like a, like an electronic translator. But at that time, this is like 2004 or five when I bought it, they didn't have them from English to Chinese. They only had it from Chinese to English that I could find. And this was a Taiwanese machine. So that means in mainland China, they use simplified Chinese, which is less strokes when you look at a character. But in Hong Kong and Taiwan and maybe other places, they use traditional, which means like a lot more. What you would think of as like lines to make up a character. The interface of this translating device was in traditional Chinese. So I could hardly use it. And they were all like phrases. I don't remember if I could type in a word. I think I could type in a word. You know, I can't really remember. It cost me, I think, $200 for that little machine. And it wasn't working. By the time I had to go to China. So I found one place in America that could fix it in Flushing, New York, and I called them, and the idea was I was going to ship it to them, they were going to overnight it to my aunt and uncle's shop in New York City. We'd go up to New York City, like stay one night, we'd get the package, and then we'd go to the airport. So we got the bus from Chinatown in D.C. I'll just remark that when I was 19 and living in Boston – I would frequent Chinatown. I had uh, some close Korean friends and Korean-American friends, and they would go to the Korean – like they called it Korea House. It was like Korean food. And I had a good friend from – a couple friends from Taiwan but also Hong Kong. And my friend from Hong Kong once took me to the Chinatown in Boston to eat with like 12 Chinese guys. 11 of them or 10 of them, not including my friend – we're also Hong Kongese, and there was one guy sitting across from me who was from Shanghai. And I remember him explaining to me, like, they're all speaking Cantonese, I speak Mandarin, I don't know what they're saying. And I would frequent New York City, like I would go a couple times a month and stay at my uncle's shop from Boston. It was only like ten bucks if you to come back on a Sunday. Um, and I love New York. And the guy told me, like, if you think New York's hot, like, trust me. Shanghai, man. He was like, Shanghai. He's like, New York's nothing. So I distinctly remember him saying that to me and keep the, keeping that in mind. So I was also very familiar with the Chinese buses. So I would, I took Rasan down to Chinatown. I think it's I Street. And we took the Chinatown bus up to the Chinatown in New York. And the whole way there, my mom had won you know, some kind of contest, like a blueberry phone with service. So I had a cell phone. Like a free cell phone, basically. And I was calling Air China and it was all in Chinese. So I didn't know what to do. I just would press a button, press a button, go through all the automatic menus, hang up, call back, press button. I was just trying to get a hold of somebody and I couldn't even remember like the combination. It would have probably been like, you know, three, four, two got me somebody. And I'd be asking them if I could buy the ticket. I think I got concerned that what if we show up and they're sold out? Like, then we'll have to turn around. So I did get a hold of people, and they were telling me, you just have to come up to the kiosk yourself and buy the tickets. So that was going to be the deal. Meanwhile, Rasan was on his cell phone, and he was being interviewed for, like, a job. So that was, like, half the trip. We got to my aunt uncle's store, and the package didn't arrive, so we had to call UPS, and it was, like, lost. Ended up being stuck in the UPS center in Manhattan, and we had to take a taxi up there on the way to the airport. So it was like do or die sort of a thing. We take the taxi like way out to LaGuardia, it's like $75. And we go to the kiosks and we got our tickets. And I want to say that they were like $700 round trip. And we got on this enormous airplane. And I remember it was on a Wednesday. Like that's when those these flights were. And I I figured, like, we weren't flying to Shanghai, I assume, because it was going to be more expensive. So I booked a hostel online that we could stay in Beijing for, like, three nights. And then we were going to just figure it out. We're going to get to a train station and go to Shanghai from there. We got on this enormous plane. I remember, like, I had never been on a plane like that since, the Air China. I guess it wasn't a Boeing. I don't know. But it had an upstairs, and there was, like, L-shaped executive tables all upstairs with computers. And we sat in, like, the lowest economy class. There was no screens to watch movies. There was just one projector screen that everybody would watch the same movie. And I remember mid-flight they did, like, stretches, and everybody on the plane was doing these stretches. I would later learn, like, this is just Chinese culture. Like, they do this kind of stuff. And after, I suppose, 18 hours of flying, as the plane's going down... I looked out the window and you could see, like, cars on a highway and the streetlights of this highway, and they were really white. Like, it didn't look like America. Never seen a sight like that before, and it was foggy. And that's when it kind of hit me because you're just kind of waking up and getting, you know, accustomed to where you're at. Like, I kind of felt like bail. Like, (laughs) Like, no, like, I don't, never mind, you know? But we landed, and we got our suitcases, and I had brought an empty suitcase along with mine because I just figured, like, clothes are going to be really cheap, and I could get a bunch of cheap clothes because everything's made in China, right? Not true, by the way. (laughs) I mean, I didn't find any cheap clothes. We'll see if we get to that later. But I had printed out how to get to this hostel, and I couldn't find the paper anywhere. Like, I was digging through... So I was already screwed and it's not like what you would kind of think of modern cities and modern countries and you just walk up to – you know, there's going to be an English-speaking somebody. No, there really wasn't. It was just like super-duper China and, <laughs> and we were looking around. I was like we got to find like an internet cafe and we got in the elevator and there was a guy in there who said he would show us to one for $100 – so we were like, we're not giving you $100, dude. And he was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so we gave him like 100 RMB. And I was able to log in and I was able to print out the directions. And we got on the subway. We transferred. Transferring was like, wasn't like you get off at one subway station and walk to a different platform. It was like half-mile connections, walled off, like that go over streets and through tunnels. And you got to make a left here. And I'm carrying all these bags and everybody's Chinese, you know, and it's like, we're definitely, we definitely don't belong. I'm white, Rasan's black, like, we're like sore thumbs standing out. And we finally got to the subway station, and the subway station was like a seven-road intersection. And my instructions said, walk like three blocks south, or five blocks south. And I don't really remember if I used my translator to try to find the word for south, but I knew the word south, and I finally, like, First, I was sitting on the sidewalk, like, kneeled down, and there was bright street lights on us on the sidewalk, and it felt really uncomfortable because if you were in an urban area like that in America at that time of night, and you looked like you were not from around there, you would be not in a safe position. And, you know, I don't know how safe it was, but it felt really, really uncomfortable. So we ended up just choosing a direction going, and every once in a while, like, if I caught eyes with somebody, I would say, nan, nan. So the the word for South in Chinese is nan, but you don't really say one word in Chinese. Like, it's got to be either connected with something or a phrase, you know, especially because it's a tonal language. I don't, you're not, people aren't going to know what you're saying unless, like, you're very, if you're very good at Chinese, you wouldn't say nan anyway, right? You'd be like... Which way? <laughs> Which way is south? The southern direction. So nobody understood me. And that's where I got my first whiff of like this sour sewage smell that you get whiffs of pretty often in Chinese cities. Distinctly remember that. Um, and by chance, man, like the direction said, you'll, you'll come up to a hostel with two like dragon sculptures in the front. And we saw the dragon sculptures. So we found it. And we checked in. And we were both hungry, so we, we backtracked back to the intersection. We went the other direction, and it was super dark. Like, it didn't feel safe, you know, that feeling in your stomach. But we had to eat. The hostel didn't have any food. There was one place with its lights on. And we went in. It was, like, it wasn't a tiny place. It was medium-sized. It was, like, wooden tables, I remember. And the menu had, like, weird pictures of meats on skewers, <laughs> and like toast. So I think we ordered like a couple skewers of meat and toast. And that was our first like night in Beijing. And I think we had 3 days there. So we went to the Forbidden City and we found somebody that we could pay to like walk us around and tell us what was going on. And we figured our we figured our way out. I I think yeah, it was tough obviously. I can't remember all of it cuz it was like 15 years ago or whatever it was. But we ended up going to the train station to try to make our way to Shanghai for this show. The train, That train station is gone now. And there's like a huge courtyard, like a plaza, which you might think of like People's Square kind of a thing, in front of it. And there's just people like all over it, like like laying down or sitting down on the ground. And lots of people like travel with just like potato sacks. And they look like they're homeless, but they're not. They're just from a place that's poor. There's lots of that. And I remember dude came over and was like, I want to practice my English. That was weird. Um, <laughs> and we went in. And I can't remember if I bought the ticket or I ended up paying somebody to help us buy the ticket. And that was only half the battle because then we had to find the platform. And it's, it was a huge place. And there was nothing on the ticket that said what platform we were, just said like Shanghai. And I, I could find, like I got in several lines where I tried to ask people and they were like, you know, you're in the wrong place. I could figure that that out. Maybe they said that in English. I don't know. But we ended up finding somebody. But before that, actually, there was like a sign on the wall, like one of those LED or LCD screens. What do you call that? Well, they had those screens on that that tell you what track number you're at. But I couldn't find where we're at. And I brought, like, a Speak Chinese book with me. This Speak Chinese book is just phrases written basically in English. In pinyin, they call it. And so it's like how to say things. But it's not something you could show a Chinese person and they would be able to read it because it's, like, English-Chinese. And I was looking at that big sign on the wall, kneeling down on the ground because I'm, like, exhausted... And I got kicked from behind and there was like a security guard and all he said was get up. So apparently you're not allowed to like kneel down on the ground inside of those places. Maybe that's why everybody's outside laying down. Uh, and then we found somebody who we were going to pay to help us find our our track. And she went to all the same places we went to. She got in all the same lines and she was having to run around. We, Me and Rasan, were like, dude, how are we ever going to find it if she can't find it? And eventually we got, we got on the damn train and it was a sleeper, which meant there was four bunk beds in our room. And we each had a top bunk and there was two trainees beneath us. And one dude like smoked, not all the time, but a lot. And where that top bunk is, is like, you can, you could be laying down and put your hand up and touch the ceiling. It was almost in your face. Like you couldn't hardly sit up. And that became just covered in smoke. I remember putting like blankets over my face and. Nothing I could do, man. It was awful. And that was my first, like, what do they call that, like, lost in communication moment because at, like, two in the morning, I went out into the hallway to try to find a place to urinate, like a bathroom, I believe it's called. And nobody was around, but the stewardess, like, woke up because she was sleeping, like, sitting up, which a lot of Chinese people do. She came over to try to help me. She looked at my ticket and then walked me back to my room, but I was like, that's not what I want, you know. And I couldn't, I didn't think of like body language or maybe I was embarrassed. So I just distinctly remember that being the first time. I was like, I don't even know how to say like bathroom. Like I don't know how to say anything, man. I knew roughly like 300 words in Chinese when I came there, but nothing in like a sentence or nothing that anybody was even gonna understand. Like I remember Rosanna and I went out to eat and the lady was taking our order and I was like, cha. And she was like, what? I was like, cha. She's like, uh, I don't. What are you? Not? And then I was like, tea. And she's like, oh, cha. Ja. <laughs> Rasan starts laughing. He's like, I don't get it, man. That's what you said, you know. But it's very intonational, and that that kind of thing was just like I wasn't going to be able to communicate. But anyway, we were we arrived in Shanghai. I don't I don't remember it. I just remember you know us getting to the hostel and the cool design of the hostel. Like kind of I don't want to say falling in love like immediately with Shanghai, but just the. All the buildings have like interesting architecture. There's just all kinds of styles. I still would think if you're into like let's say modern architecture, Shanghai has got to be a mecca for that. You have just like such an assortment of styles and individuality with buildings and you have older buildings. Like the one we stayed in was probably built by foreigners like some 70 years ago or whatever. Um, But you know, you get to those – I mentioned before you had those concessions of different – cultures that built different areas and how i can describe shanghai in my mind was if you were to take the downtown areas of like every major city in america and just put them all in one place together and just build one city that way that's what it felt like it didn't feel like um it wasn't anything like even the concept of city here now i know like there's plenty of crowded populous cities around the world But they're not like Shanghai. They're not like... They don't don't have that modern edge and that individuality of all the buildings like Shanghai does. Even though it has like old parts of town, it, it just has so many different what I would call hubs. They actually call life hubs, some of the places, which are a little bit like strip malls you'd find in the suburbs. But they're built up. They're more modernized and compact. There's all these like areas. There's just areas and areas and areas. So... Walking around Shanghai and before going to the trade show and all that, just like going around the city, it just felt like extremely interesting, like a jungle that you could move to and explore for years and never get to know. And that was the takeaway I had from Shanghai. Um And I can't remember very much from the trip. I'll just give like maybe two memories that were kind of like life lessons. One is we... we we met a guy like under the bridge, one of the bridges who took us to a shop and I ended up buying this painting on my wall that you, you may have seen in something I've shared. Um, and he took us to a tea shop and the tea shop talked us into spending a lot of, money. this is like a classic way to treat, uh, cheat foreigners in China that every foreigner knows who lives there, but we didn't know. So he takes you to this tea shop and they let you demo all these teas for like, I don't know, half hour. And then they come over and they try to sell you tea. Now you feel like obligated to buy something because they, they gave you all this tea and were really kind to you. So I remember having to buy this tea and like it set me in a really shitty mood. And we were walking down Nanjing Road, which is like the, the – at one point was the busiest road in the world. But it's one of the tourist spots and there was all these people like grabbing us by the arm like watchy-watchy, cheaper cheaper. I don't think they do that anymore, but that was pretty common. They're trying to sell you some like knockoff thing for way more than they bought it for, which is still maybe cheap to foreigners. And it was putting me in a shit mood, and there was guys just like clinging on to us. And so I just turned to them and said, you want to buy some tea? I got some really good tea here. Come on. And I was trying to sell them the tea I had for the same price I paid for it. And it was super interesting, and I love this technique now. Like, if you ever get into this situation anywhere you go, you can use it, and it works. Which is turn it around and try to sell them something, because one of the guys was like, oh, no, no, I don't have any money, man. No, I can't, I can't, you know. And they fell off like flies, like, from that point on. Anytime someone came up to me and wanted to try to talk me into buying something, if you say no, you don't want to buy it, they're not going anywhere, dude. But if you start selling them something, they fuck off, dude. So that is one of the takeaways from the trip, and then another was, and I don't know what this is, but there's probably studies done on this. Um, we were in somewhere near Century Park, um, and we were pretty exhausted, and we we're kind of getting in shitty mood. Is that's what happens when you travel and you're not like constantly traveling. Like once you hunkered down, because we were in Shanghai a while. I remember because Rasan was like, "Dude, let's like start." going somewhere else because eventually you have to start like living and that's way harder than just like traveling Uh, (laughs) so i remember we were we're kind of in crappy mood and i probably paid too much for something again and some lady came over with holding like a bunch of wind chime sort of bamboo made things she's blowing it in my face and i'm really pissed off you know yeah, so I was going to buy one and like bring it back to my mom or something as a gift. And I bought one and she was trying to talk me into buying more and I just like shouted at her as loud as I could, Booyah! And I didn't know what I was saying. I never learned to say that. I don't recall ever, even at the time I never recalled hearing anybody say that. But that's actually the the exact proper way To tell somebody you don't want anything and leave me alone in Chinese. Like that's... I would say that now if I was in China. And I remember that was just like a phenomenal moment. Like I don't know where that came from, dude. I have no idea. So there's something to that, like psychology or something. And she ended up... Oh, that's what... The story was I gave her like 10 quai for something that was like 4 quai. She took the 10 quai, gave me the thing and left without giving my change... And when I pulled her back, she was like trying to make me buy another one. That's when I was like, well, "Booyah!" So that's a pretty interesting story. I mean, those two things, and there's probably all kinds of other stuff. But that was my first trip to Shanghai, and it was pretty much from then on that I was set on living in Shanghai. I mean, the story kind of goes like: for the year after that, I would tell—I was telling everybody—I'm going to move to Shanghai. And they were like, "Oh man, awesome! Yeah, that sounds cool." The year after that, I'd be like, "I'm going to move to Shanghai." And people were like, "Oh man, you're still still trying to do that?" Okay, man. Three years after that, I would be telling people I want to move to Shanghai, and that's when they like started to dwindle more and more. And by the fifth and sixth year, it was kind of like, "Dude, they call me Kessler, my last name." You know, they're like Kessler keeps telling people he wants to move to China. You know, just just nod, you know. And then I did finally do it in 2011. And you know, when I did, people were like, whoa, dude, it's like so sudden. (laughs) But I went to Shanghai two times again, I think, before I moved there. And that's what I'll talk about in the next podcast.